Well, it's the final sermon in the book on Titus that we've been studying for many months now. And at the beginning of the, this series, we asked this question, how will the gospel advance here in this city of Edinburgh? It is a post-Christian, partly pagan, partly secular city where many people really have not heard the gospel. Uh, someone has put this little gospel song together in a simple little uh, chorus that says this, Holy God in love became a perfect man to bear our blame. On the cross he took my sin and by his death we live again. See there in a nutshell, this glorious gospel. Let me say it again. The holy God who in love became a perfect man to bear our blame. On the cross he took our sin and by his death we live again. There's the gospel. And you know many people in the city just don't know the gospel. They don't know what great news it is. We can know forgiveness of our sins, we can receive new life, we can have a, a restored relationship with God and eternal life and a future hope. Great and glorious truths. And how are we going to see this city of Edinburgh changed and transformed by this gospel? Well, over these uh, number of months now, we've been studying this letter to, uh, to Titus. So you might want to open up the book to page 1199, page 1199. In the church Bibles, we'll get you this letter of Titus. And it has some surprising answers to that question. How are we going to see the gospel advance? Well, here's what Paul has to say to Titus. We've considered that firstly, in chapter 1, that he says that you need to have churches with godly elders who have a grip on the truth. If you want to see the gospel advance in a city, you need to have churches with godly elders who have a grip on the truth. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 5, on the left-hand page there. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So the churches in Crete were having problems because they were, there was a lack of spiritual leadership. Things were crooked. They needed to be straightened out. There were false teachers, as you read on in chapter 1, teaching unsound doctrine, having a harmful impact upon Christians. And so Titus was commissioned by Paul to make sure that the job was done, that in every church there were elders, spiritual leaders, who would fulfill this important role of, of, of chapter 1, verse 9. Have a look at that. The elder, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So to advance the gospel in a city, you need godly elders with a grip on the truth. And it was a delight to meet with the new elders yesterday. We had to cancel the elders meeting last week because of the snow. And so we met for the first time on Saturday. It was great to gather together with, uh, with uh, these uh, 19 men. I'm looking forward to working alongside them as we seek to pastor this congregation. So that's the first thing you need. Godly elders are going to hold the line 
on gospel truth. But the other surprising answer of what's going to make the gospel advance in the city is in chapter 2 and 3. Not only do you need godly elders, but you need a godly congregation of men and women, old and young, who are going to live their lives at home, um, in society, um, in work, in such a way that their lives adorn the gospel. If we're going to see the gospel advance in this city, we need a congregation of godly people who live their lives in, in this way, that the way they live it is going to draw people's gaze to what is it that makes your life different? What is it about you? We've been thinking about this idea of the picture frame, that the picture frame is not the work of art. The, the picture is the work of art. The gospel, uh, the, the great news of our, of, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that's the work of art. But our lives are like the frame that holds up this wonderful gospel to the world. And, and our lives are called to be fitting frames to this picture. So people are drawn in to have a look at the picture. Not that our frames are so ugly and hideous that people don't even want to look at the picture. I can't even look at that picture. Look at that frame. See, if we're going to see the gospel advance, we need godly elders and we need a godly congregation. That's what we've been thinking about over these last few months. Now what will keep us on track with godliness? Well, it is by having a deep commitment to the gospel. Now let me take you back to what we looked at briefly last week in Titus chapter 3 verse 8. Look at chapter 3 verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things. Now what things? What things uh, what is the trustworthy saying? Well it's there back in verses 4 to 7, wasn't it? If we look back to verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified, made right before God by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Another magnificent statement of the gospel. That is the trustworthy saying. That's what needs to be stressed. That's what we need to have a deep commitment to, to the gospel. If we're going to stay on track with godliness, we need to be a church that teaches, that studies, that trusts, that proclaims this wonderful gospel. And so Paul says to Titus, I want you to stress these things. So that, verse 8, so that those who've trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. It is a meditation on the gospel that's really going to spur and motivate godliness. Not a, a series of rules or laws or, or, you know, this is what's required. No, it is, it is a reflection of what all God has done for us that's going to spur a life of godliness. That's what we've been considering. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone, it says. Now, I give that as a long introduction 
to the section that we're going to consider today. So let's, let's read uh, from verse 9 to the end of the chapter. Titus chapter 3, verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So you see that the, the logic, this is why my introduction was so long. The logic of 3 verse 8 is this. Stress the gospel. And then 3 verse 9, but avoid distracting controversies. Right? Stress the gospel, but avoid distracting controversies. There are many things that can put us off track as a church. Many, many different things. And we need to avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and all these things because they are unprofitable and worthless. There are lots of secondary matters that Christians uh, can have different opinions about. And the danger is when a church focuses on secondary things and not the main thing of the gospel. Our job is to keep the main thing the main thing. And there's just countless opportunities to be distracted away from the gospel, aren't there? Um, in the United States, where I pastored uh, a church there, uh, they had some very strong views. It's safe to talk about somewhere else, isn't it? Right? You know, obviously, we've got no distracting issues here. None at all. Anyways, let's talk about them over there. And I don't, maybe we might think of some for ourselves. But in the States, there was very strong views on education. We had homeschoolers in church. And then we had people who sent their children to private Christian schools. And we had people who sent them to state schools. And it, it's amazing how emotive that issue became. And I think it's a matter of uh, freedom, what you decide to do with your own children. But it seemed to me that for some, they saw their choices as being the only biblical, godly response that was valid and the problem comes when we start treating our choice as a primary gospel truth. And we start looking down our noses at others who've made different choices. And there were other matters, um, such as having very definite views on the specifics of the second coming. There, it was amazing to me what an industry there was in the States. Obviously, we're not talking about us, no. In the States... People would, would spend countless hours and dollars 
listening to some latest guru with his latest book who could show from world history how ancient prophecies were, were, were being fulfilled and that Christ was imminently going to return um, just because of, well, there was a whole host of different things. It was quite humorous. Y2K uh, to the Gulf War to the Twin Towers to the Iraq invasion and so on and, and Christians went out and bought gallons of baked beans and powdered milk and plenty of ammo and hunkered down in their houses awaiting the collapse of society it's actually I'm not joking that actually really did happen others get distracted by the latest incredulous uh, book um, there was a book out called the Bible Code um, you, can, you can Wikipedia it uh, if you want to know about it, don't because it's a waste of time. But it claimed that it, by analyzing the, that actually, that, that actually there, were, there was messages in the Bible. This was the shocking story. Messages in the Bible. But actually, you needed to put the Hebrew text in a computer system. And actually, with some clever code, it, it turns out that the hidden, hidden in the Hebrew text, how exciting is this? You could discover, you know, like Nostradamus. Uh, future events about to happen, like it predicted the shooting of JFK and, and all sorts of things like this. And of course, you know, be, these become number one bestsellers and cause such furore and excitement. Or people get distracted and worked up about, um, you know, watching Harry Potter or reading Harry Potter books. Others have got sidetracked into cults that have taught to be, that to, to be truly Christian. You need to follow the Jewish festivals and holy days. We had a member in our church who lived next door to a, a Christian couple who used to do all the Jewish festivals. They used to go out and, and do the um, festival of the booths and they would make like a little uh, booth outside at the right time of the year. And they, they held that you had to have hold to the Jewish kosher laws if you were really going to be a proper Christian. This is not an ancient Galatian heresy. This is live and well in Spokane. And maybe, who knows, in Edinburgh. There are so many things. I mean, I could, I, I honestly, I could have kept listing things that, that, that Christians can get worked up about, that can distract people from keeping the main thing, the main thing. And if we're going to be on track with the gospel, we need to avoid foolish controversies because they are unprofitable. They are useless compared to the excellent and profitable teachings of the gospel. But also to stay on track, we need to avoid divisive people. It's not just distracting controversies, but divisive people. Look at verse 10. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. Now there's no doubt that Paul has in view the um, these false teachers that he's perhaps mentioned in chapter 1, if you look back to chapter 1, verse 10, there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, he says, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. So you can get divisive people who will try and split churches for financial benefits uh, to spread their false teaching. But you know, there's also a type of proud personality that, that can't bear it when the leaders of the church make a different decision to the one they'd hoped for. And so they start a slow campaign of attrition uh, through 
criticism, uh, maligning characters, gossip, half-truths, and uh, then they gather unhappy people around them, and pretty soon a church becomes sapped of its joy. It gets distracted from its main mission. And Paul gives very practical advice. Uh, if such a pers- person is there who is behaving in these ways, well, they should be warned about the harm that they're doing to the fellowship and the harm that they're doing for the cause of the gospel. And if having been warned, they persist in it, what do you do? Well, because you desire to win them and bring them back, you go back to them again and you warn them again. Do you see how harmful this is? Do you see how dangerous you're, you, the way you're being divisive in the church, the way this is harming the gospel? Can we urge you to, to repent, to change, to desist, or be at peace, go to another fellowship where you can spread the joy there? But what do you do if they don't heed your warning and they continue well Paul's quite clear isn't he have nothing more to do with them there comes a point where uh, this maligning influence must be removed because it's harmful to a congregation as, as Paul says in verse 11 you may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful He's self-condemned. See, somebody who will not listen to the leaders of a church who are patiently bringing before them their concerns and completely ignore that and, and continue to do that, in a sense, that behavior shows a very proud person, a warped person, a sinful person, the Apostle Paul says, a self-condemned person. Now, I have to say that I've rarely seen this happen. Is that because our churches don't have divisive people in them? (laughs) Well, no, I I think probably because um, church leaders hate doing it. It's a horribly painful thing. But it's arguable that maybe more harm is done in the long term uh, for the gospel witness of a church if the leaders don't come alongside divisive people and warn them. So if we're going to stay on track, what have we got to do? We've got to avoid distracting um, controversies. We've got to avoid um, divisive people. And secondly, second final word that uh, Paul has for Titus is that we should aid gospel workers in verses 12 to 14. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can uh, to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. It's clear as you read the New Testament that uh, the Apostle Paul worked in teams all the time. He worked in teams of people. He wasn't just the solo man. He'd left Titus in Crete to finish the job. It was a short-term project. He wanted him back. Uh, he was going to send either Artemis or Tychicus to come and relieve him and to kind of help the churches in Crete to continue to grow. Zenos uh, and Apollos most likely brought this letter to Titus from the Apostle Paul. 
And here's a, here's a vision, a picture of, of the first century churches, of interconnected churches, isn't it? Of gospel workers uh, working together. Now, Christians work for, for a variety of different reasons. We considered that a few weeks ago. You know, we work uh, not only to, to, to get our daily bread, but we work to adorn the gospel uh, out there in the world, is what we considered a few weeks ago. And also, there's another reason here. We work to support gospel workers. That's one of the reasons that Christians work. We, we work to support ourselves and our families, and we work to support gospel work. We know that this gospel is so precious, that people are so lost, that we're going to commit to work, to raise finance, to be able to support gospel ministry. That's what we're about. We considered from Isaiah 52, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And I don't know whether you've ever had that experience where you've, you've been in a terrible situation and someone's rushed up to you and they've shared this one bit of news that's changed everything. Have you ever had that? And if you've ever had that experience, you kind of almost want to kiss their feet. Oh, thank you. You know? You lose your child in the uh, shopping mall. You've gone for an hour frantically. You can't find your kid. And uh, the security comes up and says, we found your child. Oh, thank you. Thank you. How, what, well, we know the greatest news is the good news of the gospel. Um, even the feet of those who bring that good news are, are just wonderful. Feet are less than attractive. But even the feet are fantastic. People bring, Thank you for bringing that news. Oh, thank you so much. And so we're committed to financing people who are going to spread this gospel, take this gospel throughout Edinburgh, Scotland, Europe, the world. And a church that stays on track keeps that commitment. Do everything you can to help Zenos and Apollos on their way. It's just practically saying, make sure they've, they've got all the provisions they need. Make sure that they've uh, got some money in their pockets. Make sure they've got some food. Send them well on their way. They are worthy of such support. And that's what we're engaged in here at this church, isn't it? To our very many mission partners. And if I can just uh, use this opportunity to make some real practical application. As we shared at the members meeting, we've got a budget shortfall. It's a tough time financially. We understand that. But I would urge the congregation to think, uh, if each giving unit gave an additional £190, we would remove the budget deficit for our missions and our general funds. So just lay that before you as you consider um, your expenditure uh, over this month. So avoid, aid, and the final word is of assurance. I don't know how you've been finding uh, this teaching on godliness over the last few weeks and months. Has it seemed like a bit too much? A tall order? Was it, is it too unrealistic? Is it too difficult? Maybe uh, over these weeks you've had uh, an experience where on Sunday you felt challenged by God's word about an area in your life and you've gone away with fresh resolve and say, well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change. And you've tried hard to change. 
but you've become aware of how difficult it is to really make changes in your behavior. And the truth is that actually at the end of the series, you might be feeling discouraged by your failure and your sin. Well, I want you to hear this wonderful final note of assurance in the letter. Look at verse 15. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. What a wonderful note to finish this letter on. Grace be with you all. God's grace is with us. God's grace is with us to forgive our sins. Have you become more aware in the last few weeks of sin in your life? Well, let me assure and comfort you. God's grace is there to forgive our sins, to cover our shame, to cleanse us, to make us clean. God's grace is with us in this. And not only has God come to save us, but God has come to change us. We considered that, didn't we? God's grace is there to empower us to growing godliness. And I see that note in verse 14. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. It's a process of learning to grow in godliness. We've been thinking back in chapter 2 and verse 12 that God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to say yes to godliness and an upright and self-controlled life. It is a process. God's grace is teaching us. We are learning this. And God's grace is at work in growing godliness. My friends, we should not be discouraged, but we should have confidence as we consider this letter that God is at work in us. That God is at work in this church. And I think some might be here and you might be feeling so defeated by sin, so discouraged. So hear this. God's grace is with us. It's not an instant fix. There's not like a magic moment. Oh, bang, I don't have a problem with alcohol anymore. Bang, I don't have a problem with lust anymore. No, it's not like that. But God's grace is at work in growing godliness in us. That's why Christmas is such a precious time, isn't it? We're remembering God has sent us a savior. We're remembering that God has sent us a savior who sent his spirit, who's committed to this ongoing change in our lives. There is grace to help men become self-controlled. There is grace to help men to grow to be more loving. There's grace to overcome addictions to alcohol and to drugs. There is grace uh, to change our words of slander to words of truth and encouragement. There, There is grace for wives to help them love their husbands, to help them love their children. There is grace for employees to stop being negative and start working for the glory of God. There is grace for people who stir up conflict to instead to become people of peace. There's grace for elders to keep modeling godliness and to teach the truth and to refute error. 
And Jesus will return in glory to gather up a purified and redeemed people. This is a plan from before eternity that goes into eternity. God's at work. He's going to get it done. And so as we finish this series on Titus, I want to finish with this final word of assurance at the end of this letter. Grace be with you all. Grace be with me, with us. Let's pray.